Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. Normally on these occasions, we get in a member of the great and the good and talk to them about their lives. But with everything so chaotic at the moment, we wanted to do things a little differently. CapEx's deputy editor, Oliver Wiseman, has been traveling the country, visiting all manner of constituencies to try to get a picture of Britain and its voters. We're going to be talking to him about what he found out on his travels and more generally about what the hell happens next. Ollie, hi. Hi, Rob. So, first question, and it's, it's a big one. I mean, did, did you spot any of this coming? Uh, I think largely the answer to that question has to be, uh, t- to be no. Um, although, obviously, with hindsight, like lots of people with hindsight, um, you know, there were, there were clues. Uh, one of which I wrote about on CapEx uh, at the end of last week, which was a conversation I had in Wirral West, which is a marginal seat uh, near Liverpool. I, I asked some Tory activists there um, what the biggest issue they had um, in the campaign was. And I was surprised to hear the answer was fox hunting. And so in hindsight, that to me was a sign that maybe a problem the Conservatives were having was that they were looking a little too like conservatives in parts of the country where that is still a problem. Yes, because in, in, in the terms of the polls, the story of the campaign wasn't actually a Tory collapse. It was the fact that uh, it was a Labour surge. And the fact seemed to be that the, the, the nature of the Tory campaign gave people permission to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, in a way. Or that they, they feared him less than they feared the, the, same, the same old Tories. Exactly. And I think related to that is the, is the maybe the Tories assumed that lots of Labour voters, um, because of Brexit, uh, you know, Labour voters who, who voted to leave, that it was going to be much more of a kind of automatic process to vote Conservative than in the end it, it was. And for example, we saw on, on, on election night, the um, it looks like the UKIP vote didn't go nearly as, uh, it wasn't nearly, it didn't break back to the Tories in the way that many had assumed and obviously the Tories had hoped and actually Labour Lots of people just voted UKIP and then went back to the party they were voting for before. Although I've seen data which has suggested the Tories actually got the preponderance of UKIP votes. It's just they, they picked them up in... So, I mean, one of the places you went to is... You went to places like Chesterfield and, mm-hmm. and Ebervale, you know, and places which have been sort of Labour mm-hmm. for generations, that they seemed to pick them up quite easily there. Yeah. But the problem was that these were not marginal seats. Right. These, these were places with lots of Labour Leave voters where there are just lots of Labour voters full stop. Yeah, and I think that's another 
problem, and obviously it's easy to say this with hindsight, but clearly a mistake the Conservatives made was to reach, uh, you, you know, assume that the marginals were in the bag, the, the very marginal seats were in the bag because Corbyn was so unelectable in their view, and therefore look further afield to these places where there are big Labour leave votes. Mm. Um, and in the end, they didn't get those votes and they didn't have a strategy that would work for the marginals either. So, and, that, and that's why they, they ended up losing seats. Yes, although, I mean, <clears throat> talking to people within the Conservative campaign, there's, there's a feeling that, that, you know, beyond Corbyn's own personal appeal and the rallies and all the rest of it, you know, there wasn't a great Labour campaign out there. there it, it didn't seem like, you, I, I don't know what you found on, mm. the, on the ground, but there, there weren't. I think that that rings true. Uh, but one, uh, just an, I was going to say another piece of reporting that had a kind of clue in, in terms of the Corbyn side of, of of things this election, which is obviously, as you say, the big issue is actually not so much, a, it's actually the surge in support for Corbyn and Labour rather than the Conservatives necessarily collapsing. When I went to, when I went to South Wales um, and ended up talking to these uh, retired uh, steelworkers who uh, they were never going to vote for anyone other than the Labour Party, and, Jer- and they were perfectly happy with Jeremy Corbyn as a as a candidate. They would describe themselves as socialists, and he was right up their street ideologically. So, in some ways, they weren't very interesting voters to talk to. Except, what was surprising was talking to them, uh, and these were all men in their seventies, I'd say. All of them uh, had the usual left wing criticisms of um, the mainstream media the Sun, the Daily Mail, and so on, sort of poisoning people's minds. Uh, and then they proceeded to say that they got their news from places like the Canary and all sorts of sort of unusual and sometimes less than kind of straight with the truth uh, sources. Th- those sources were the source for those guys of, you know, some fairly crazy conspiracy theories. And they have there's a picture they build up in their heads of, you know, election expenses fraud and a few other stories that make the... Conservative Party look completely rotten to the core, and also I mean that the that the criticisms of Corbyn don't kind of land. Yes, I mean, so I mean, and that's one of the interesting things this election that everyone talked about the, the Corbyn's youth armada, but in fact, the uh, judging by Lord Ashcroft's data, the you know Labour's vote was actually quite high in the sort of mm. in the sort of thirty-five to forty-four year olds. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's if there's a generational war, then you know there's there's more people on the. On the on the young side than than we thought, and that the and that these you know judging by where these people are getting their news from, it's not just people in their teens and twenties reading, uh, get, taking their news online. The kind of valid criticisms, many of which may be made on capex of, of Jeremy Corbyn on issues like terrorism and security, just didn't land. I think partly because of that slightly post truth uh, kind of mood. I do think that's been a sort of underplayed. Part of it all, and I was going to ask you more, more broadly um, about whether you is there is there still a national conversation? Is there still a national sort of narrative? Because um, I mean, one of the most striking pieces you did for us on the campaign trail was when you went to uh, Christchurch, which is the mm-hmm. oldest constituency in the country, and then to Sheffield Hallam, which is pretty much the, the youngest. And you've got you know in one you've got lots of. Um, elderly people wandering around who are actually <laughs> many of the people you talk to, you know, they, they didn't even mind that much about things like the triple lot because they're yeah. all they're all actually pretty well off. And similarly, they will leave voting. And then you go up north, and you've got lots of uh, young, passionate Remainers who are sort of convinced that the Tories have stolen their future. Yeah, and, and I and I think those two seats. Um, well, the point about Christchurch was I clearly got the, totally the wrong end of the stick because I spoke to all these. Um, 
older voters perfectly happy to uh, with the social care reforms. This was this was the day before the U-turn. Perfectly happy with the reforms, and I came back and wrote a piece arguing exactly that that this is not uh, going to be a problem for Theresa May. Although actually, I would I do maybe now's the time to say this. I think that the way that the I think there's a myth forming already about the the role that that U-turn had in the campaign, and I think it's important that the Conservatives don't learn the wrong lessons from it. Specifically, I think that the issue was actually the U-turn rather than the policy itself. You see what I mean? It looked like dithering and it looked like... It was, um, not, it was not strong and stable. It was not, exactly. It was not strong and stable. Whereas actually the, the, the policy itself was polled over the weekend before the U-turn and more people were opposed to, than were in favour of it. But that was kind of before the Conservatives had really tried to make the case for it. And also it was never going to be this... Uh, I mean, it, it, it wasn't going to be a very popular policy, but it was something they were... Yes, I mean, I, 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 as I understand it, though, I mean, it was coming up on the doorstep in a in a big way, which is why they they did the U-turn. But um, but equally, I mean, what, what what sort of terrifies me about it is that the lesson the lesson which will obviously be drawn is you cannot do anything to take away people's privileges, especially the privileges of the old. That um, you know, I I, I wrote uh, I've not repeated on campaigns about this. You know, things like that. You know, we we got every right wing think tank in the country to to give us their sort of policy prescriptions for the next government and every single one of them said get rid of the triple lock because it's just not fair mm-hmm. it's rewarding people who already have a you know a, obviously we don't there are poor pensioners and they need to be looked after but you know as a class the average pensioner is now earning more than the average worker which is a, a sort of moderately insane situation and what my worry is that less people are going to learn from this is just don't don't touch anything don't touch people's houses i mean you think about um uh, something like uh, planning reform and, and the green belts. You know, the, you know the, the, it's going to be a brave party which goes in with the kind of reform policies which would be needed to actually get more houses built where they need to be built. And I think that's something. I think you've made the point um, yourself about the criticism of Nick Timothy in the manifesto, which is that yes, criticise mistakes made in the manifesto, but don't learn the lesson, which is just never do anything difficult. Never kind of go outside of a conservative orthodoxy that says you know, keep our core voters happy. Yes, I, I mean, my my quarrel with the manifesto is not the, the, the people it was targeting. It was the it was the way it, it targeted them. I mean, the uh, large parts of it seemed to be written as part of an internal argument within the Conservative Party. There was sort of all these gratuitous swipe swipes against libertarians yeah. and um, it's a little kind of and praise, you know, pians of praise to the state, you know, which... It, you've got the sense that the, the the target audience was people like me reading it and throwing up my hands in horror, as opposed to you know voters on the street who wanted policies that they could you know go they could be impressed by. And I think that's one of the, the one of the more sensible criticisms of the kind of generational aspect of the manifesto is that, that it was the right thing to be taking on, as you just explained, the things to do with the disparity between generations are is a big issue and the right one to take on, but. They took it on in such a way that there was no there was no positive policy that someone could get a voter could get excited about to kind of go with the more negative ones like means testing means testing the winter fuel allowance. So there wasn't. Do you see what I mean? There wasn't a yes. kind of um, one that you would want to stand in front of yeah. an audience and yeah, say, and, "We'll do X." Yeah, and but and part of this was actually was obviously the fact that the Tories were sensibly saying that you know there is overall there's not much money left and we can't just give away freebies whereas Labour were saying have all the freebies you want yeah. you want we'll never be in power and then producing this rigi- ridiculous drivel about it being costed when in fact everyone yeah. was quite explicit it, you know the costings were 
nonsense and as an overall thing it represented a vast intrusion of the state into the economy and i think one of the most what will probably go down as one of the most kind of criminal aspects of this campaign from probably from the conservatives point of view is that they managed is that labor successfully fought that issue of fiscal responsibility to a standstill against the conservatives they managed to get to the situation where we oh well the well ours is costed and theirs isn't that was obviously rubbish but the Conservatives weren't able to explain to, you know, this is what's worrying for, for us, is that they weren't able to explain successfully enough to the British public there is a several leagues different between what we're trying to do with the British economy and government spending and what the Labour Party is planning to do. Yes, and all you got was, well, you know, Labour are going to give us free tuition fees and it's costed. And, and, and on, that, on that point, there's sort of the generational aspect of, of the election comes in again because... Labour, now we're recording this a few, you know, a few days after the election, and Labour are being described as carried to the, being carried to this surprise result by, by the young. And yet their, their, their approach to the generational issue was just to give everyone money. Yes. It, actually, the, the, the party which was more skewed towards the young in what they were doing, funnily enough, was the Conservative Party. Yes, I mean, this is one of the great ironies of the Corbyn-McDonnell era, that they, they start off as the, in, in the leadership contest originally, they start off as the tribunes of the young. And, they, you know, it's, they're, 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 it's about giving them a fair shake. And then at some point, someone points out to John McDonnell that, you know, the old people vote in far larger numbers and that the Labour Party's figures are something like, you know, 75% to 7 or, you know, there's a titanic imbalance. And then suddenly Labour start talking about the triple look. I mean, actually, that, I mean, but more than that, actually, there's a bizarre thing with, on the Labour side, about the universal benefits. That you know, the Labour, John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn, who you know, are being cheered to the rafters for promising to you know Richard Bran- that Richard Branson will get the winter fuel payment, and that, his, and that his kids will get free tuition fees. Right, exactly. And yet, that must go down there as a failing of the Conservative Party from a campaigning point of view to not be able mm. to point this out in a way that. Mm. And, I, and I think part, partly that comes out of the campaign message, which was very much personalised around. Theresa May herself, so you know it was a it was a strong and stable leader, not a strong and stable economy. Whereas David Cameron's message in twenty ten was actually the strategy was actually remarkably similar. It's sort of a, a robotic repetition of mm-hmm. of the key messages, but those key messages were about economic security. This is something I'm interested to know whether it holds up when people sort of look at the tapes. But two weeks before polling day, YouGov released a survey, and I know. The pollsters did not have a good election, but it was very striking that when you ask people what they actually expected to happen as to what they hoped would happen after the election, uh, very, very, very few people, we're talking the sort of one, two, three, four, five percent, expected a Labour government. So for me, there might actually, you know, in, 20, in 2015, you had the, the actual, this was a real prospect of Ed Miliband becoming Prime Minister. And in 2017, you had the surreal prospect of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. So... All the stuff about you know a coalition of chaos with Jeremy Corbyn, it doesn't it doesn't ring true in the same way. It doesn't work unless you think it's going to happen. Yes, and the the way thing the paradox of the thing is the polls close, but they close so suddenly and sharply that people haven't really adjusted yeah. their thinking. And in that sense, you, there was quite a good argument to say that the polls getting it wrong in twenty fifteen was was a huge advantage for the Conservative Party um, because it made their message so much more potent. And then the opposite was true this time around in the sense that it made their message less persuasive because it just seemed so unbelievable that Corbyn would ever come close. In terms of, obviously the next 
few weeks will be dominated by in, in fighting between the Tory party as as we speak. The the cabinet is being is being reformed, and Michael Gove has been brought back in, for example. But looking ahead, it feels like there are sort of three big challenges. One is kind of what we've been discussing, which is making working out how you can make the Tories appeal to this cohort of people who rejected them this time. The second is uh, Brexit, obviously, and the third is how you, which kind of is, is attached to the first, which is how you how you stop Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, we, what's the sort of what's the sort of priority list for you? Uh, well, the priority list for the Conservative Party, do you mean? Yes. Uh, well, I would say that the. I mean, we've run a piece today by Andrew Lillico explaining that now the most important thing in politics is to stop Jeremy Corbyn and everything else kind of fades into into the background. But, yeah, I, but equally, I, I, it's possible to imagine people for whom Brexit is still the key issue. I know it's fascinating in them in them sort of minutes after the election to see John Redwood going on TV and saying, "Austerity is over. Fine, this was an anti-austerity election, but Brexit is still yeah. happening, and Brexit is what is what matters." There, there seems to be a people are trying either sort of saying this was a resounding rejection of austerity, but Brexit can continue, or this was a rejection of Brexit, but austerity can continue. Well, I would say that on the Brexit front, there are, reading the tea leaves from this election from a Conservative point of view is actually quite worrying, because um, if you look at the way, as we discussed earlier, the way UKIP voters went and the way Brexit, this, these Brexit, these Brexit land seats didn't turn blue in the way they thought, mm. the, you can come to, let's say, three conclusions, none of which are particularly positive ones from a Conservative point of view. So one is that Brexit in of itself was explained explained by austerity and that lots of the discontent that led to that vote was actually to do with Conservative government policy. I think that's a little unfair. No, I'm, I mean, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm saying these are these are, these are are three possible theories. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, austerity is a response to 2008. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, second, the second conclusion is that these voters just saw... Uh, They've already, which I think is the most persuasive, they've already cashed the Brexit check and they think that they've dealt with Brexit um, because they voted to leave last year and that's now, that's now done. And then the third, I, the third theory is that Brexit actually isn't that important to voters and that they were given the choice last year and they voted to leave and then they just sort of got back to politics as usual. The, the reason I go through these is because I think it, makes, it must make you worried as a Conservative minister that if Brexit talks start going badly, how little kind of popular will you'll have behind you and how little kind of cheerleading there'll be and how quick people will be to to, to blame you for what for what happens I think that's true I mean I, I don't think I don't sort of care, I don't really agree with you if you that Brexit or the, the suggestion that Brexit wasn't an issue because I think if you, if you look there was yeah. a very clear correlation especially there was a very clear correlation between how people voted on Brexit and how they voted in mm-hmm. this election the problem for the Tories was that you know, the correlation there were a lot more seats where there were enough angry remain voters mm-hmm. And who then who sort of swallowed their doubts about Corbyn in mm-hmm. order to give the give the Tories a bloody nose? I mean, I think the, the position is complicated on Brexit because of the the sort of deliberate ambiguity of Labour's case. Macdonald and Corbyn have never liked the EU. I mean, you, sort of uniquely in British politics, they are people for whom the EU doesn't interfere enough in Britain's economy, as opposed to mm-hmm. interferes too much. Um, if you look in, in I, I spent a. a, a, a very exciting week, kind of in the archives, going through the, the collected writings, and um, 
Uh, McDonald, for example, writes a thing in 2010 called, called the, you know, um, a manifesto for 21st century socialism. And one of the things he says is that you know we will we must reform the EU because it is in the interests of the capitalists, and you know it's not supporting workers' rights. So you know they are. We would not have had Brexit if it was not for the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was at the top of the Labour Party, being spectacularly unhelpful to the Remain side to the point of sort of active sabotage. I mean. There is no, you, know, you end up in a situation where quite a lot of Labour voters don't know where their own party is on this issue because Corbyn is sitting on his hands and refusing to allow the party machine to do anything. And his, his speeches on the issue are sort of 90% whining about the EU and 10%, oh yeah, but if you must, I suppose, vote remain. So there's, so there's that aspect. Yet Labour as a whole, obviously, institutionally is extremely pro-remain. I mean, all the rest of the, the MPs are and quite a lot of the voters are. So... Everyone was saying the problem in this election is going to be that Labour is caught between two blocks. There are the Leave voters in the working class and the Remain mm-hmm. voters in the middle class. And what they do more by very much more by, by judge, than judgment, I sort of feel, is end up in a situation where they're just Leavey enough for the for the Leave voters. They say they, they kind of grudgingly swallow Article Fifty, and you know, in their manifesto it says we will be leaving the single market, but they are. Else they are going to remain enough for the mm-hmm. for the middle class classes, and so so you now have a situation where the Tories are in the sort of have the same problem, which is that they've got a kind of a new Brexity base, but they've also got this sort of affluent sort of mostly remaining base, and it's and they're trying to reconcile those. The I, I think it's going to be fascinating over the next few weeks to see what happens with Labour's position on this because because there are two there are two stories doing the rounds today. One is you know. 80% of the country voted for parties which want to leave the single market. The other is that 60% of the country voted against harsh, cold Tory Brexit, right. as, as hard Brexit has been rechristened. And in, in fact, you know, there, there, you know, I, I think um, Martin Howe is quite persuasive on this. You know, there's not hard Brexit and soft Brexit. There's just actual Brexit in which you know, we, come out of, we come out of the single market and customs union and do... Uh, you know, and can sign our own trade deals and have the closest possible trade deal uh, with the EU. Or there is something which which doesn't look like which actually isn't Brexit at all. It's kind of it's like a Norwegian option where it's very hard to see what we gained by by leaving or what extra freedoms we have. And and obviously, you know, that might you might argue that the economic damage of Brexit as Brexit is sufficient that we have to go for that. And I think from the, the political question that's interesting is the Labour position, I think, like you say, is arrived at by luck more than anything else. And again, is one of the, to go back to the theme we were talking about earlier, is one of those issues where they basically could walk that line because no one thought they were ever going to be in government. Yeah. I mean, so one of the, I think one of the assumptions I sort of feel people are making in, uh, in the last few days, which I think is wrong, is that, is that things are going to continue on a straight line. You know, Jeremy Corbyn has, you, whatever your position on Corbyn, you have, can't argue that he hasn't had a very good past couple of months. And there are a lot more people than we ever thought there could be or should be who, um, who agree with his prescription or at least are angry about the same things that he's angry about. But the issue is for Corbyn that whenever he goes out of campaigning mode and goes, goes back into the having to run the Labour Party mode, it all goes horribly wrong for him. And, you know, maybe he's bought himself some grace because of the, you know, he's increased the party's number of MPs, which no one thought was going to happen. But at the same time, you know, he and McDonald and Seamus Milne and the rest of them do have a track record of doing things and taking positions which are spectacularly grating to a large proportion of of their MPs. And not even in a sort of 
this is our sinister long-term left-wing hard left plan to take over the party kind of way just because just we're not just we're not very good at this kind of way well i think also the other thing they they have to deal with now um is the fact that the labor labor critics of corbyn will will not be happy with the strategy of let him fail and then and then step in because clearly that clearly yes that. i mean it was notable during the election that they were you know, the, the, the Eva Coopers and Chucker Romanos of this world were absolutely nowhere to be seen. Yeah, so there's the problem of the Labour MPs, the problem from Corbyn's point of view of his, his internal enemies within the, within the Labour Party now feeling like it's actually a tougher fight than maybe they thought it was a few months ago. And then there's the other problem, which is just one of expectation management. I mean, I think part of the issue of this campaign is people just had such low expectations for his campaign that just being a sort of functioning politician was seen as him having a great day. And so now he's going to be held to a higher standard and we'll see what, we'll see what happens. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't think we can sort of underestimate the difficulty the, the Conservatives are in. And, and one of my worries, it's not just about Brexit, it's just about, it's about everything that, you know, we'd already seen under, in the Cameron and Osborne days and under May again, that there's no, it's not just the public who are fed up of austerity. Many Conservatives MPs seem to be, at least when it affected their, their voting basis. I mean, there were, there were things that the, you know, that Cameron and Osborne couldn't get through because the, the parliamentary party wouldn't wear it. And then at May's very first budget, Hammond comes up with the national insurance prices, um, which only affect a, a small slice of the population. Um, I mean, you know, and are a breach of the manifesto and they have to drop them in quite a humiliating fashion. There are other, you know, other things like, you know, grammar schools or whatever, uh, Heathrow expansion, social care, essentially all of the great challenges of the day where you might need to do something which is going to upset quite a lot of people. Uh, public sex pensions, you know, any, you can list off the top of your head, mm-hmm. you know, almost, you know, a few dozen of these. And none of them can now happen. And, you know, Andrew Lilico says in his piece on, you know, the priorities of stopping Corbyn, if, you, if, you, if, if the price for this is five years of Queen's speeches, which contain nothing but a, you know, a, a promise to, you know, clean some rat hole covers, then, you know, that's fine. But I don't, I don't think it's fine. I think the country's got problems which need solutions. And the other point, obviously, is that you, in where, where I disagree with Lilico is the way, to solve, the way to solve the Corbyn problem is to solve the other problems. So, yes, you know, look, yes, if, 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 if real wages are not, are not falling for, for a decade, you do not end up with a Corbyn situation. Or, you know, to take, another, I mean, to take the most difficult from a conservative political point of view example of all, the number what by miles the number one concern of Labour voters at this election, according to the big um, Ashcroft poll on done on polling day, which is quite good. Um, as, as these polls go, it's pretty good. The NHS is the by miles the biggest issue, and there are systemic strains on it which have to be addressed. They can't not be addressed. And if you if you go for this kind of narrow approach, I think you just create a even more even more fertile soil for Corbyn and McDonald to... Yes, and uh, I suppose part of the problem that, with that is you have, if you've been in, in power in more or other since 2010, it's quite hard to admit that things things need to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as we speak, Jeremy Hunt has just been reappointed as, as health secretary. That's not a message that you are going to do anything about the NHS. It's a message that says, you know, we're just going to try and keep things on the road as, as much as we can. I mean, the, the same happened with education. You had Michael Gove, who made a hell of a lot of enemies, but really had a... Instinct, a plan, a vision for modernising education, for doing things differently, and um, you know, achieve some really quite remarkable things. And then you know, he gets booted out because 
you know, that he's made too many enemies. And Nicky, first Nicky Morgan and then Justin Green again, put in with a brief to basically do nothing. Yeah, I actually had a conversation with someone before, I think it was around the time the manifestos were published, so before the disastrous result. I was, I was making the point to them that uh, Theresa May's called this election mostly to do with timing, so that the next vote she'd have would be in 2022. And I was basing, based on what was in the manifesto, I was making the point that in 2022, the Conservatives would have been, I mean, this is obviously all, this chronology is all up in the air now, but for the sake of argument, they would have been in office for 12 years. They would have hopefully um, have dealt with Brexit. But beyond that, since lacking, you know, the kind of reforming zeal of Michael Gove and education, which is a case they didn't have to what they should be doing, I think, what would they be able to look back and say, here's a way in which we had radical solutions to Britain's big problems? There wasn't really... Even even the ambition uh, there, I don't think. Yeah, and well, I, I suppose there were there might have been solutions and there might have been plans, but um, Theresa May does not like sort of independent power centres. Um, it's so easy to say all this in, in in hindsight, but you know when she was at the Home Office, she was incredibly successful as a as a minister. But that was by maintaining rigorous control of information, mm. by ensuring she was never surprised, by you know essentially running it as a, as a one man show with. Well, a three-man show because you've got your, your special advisors there. And then when you move to, to Downing Street, that model is is maintained. I mean, the sort of with Cam- with Cameron, the flip side of the whole uh, idea of that he was you know sometimes didn't pay attention to the details was that he did le- you know he didn't let ministers who had good ideas get on with it. And he kept people in jobs for a lot enough time mm-hmm. to uh, for them to kind of get their teeth into it. And of course, the problem with the Home Office, as which was where Theresa May you know, most of our experience as a minister is, is that that's a kind of damage limitation job by definition. It's about keeping things under control. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, so I guess the, the big question then is, where does this leave 
people like us. So CapEx's uh, job, its mission, its uh, sort of purpose is to make the case for free market policies of the kind that actually deliver prosperity. It feels like suddenly we are further away from that, that being at the centre of politics than it has been for many a year. I think that's undoubtedly the case. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's success, whatever happens now, will be to have moved the debate uh, to the left, I think. Yes, um, but we would way with the complicity of, of Theresa May. Yes, because, yeah, yeah. because in waging this civil war with their own party, they actually ended up accepting, you know, essentially a Ralph, not a Ralph Miliband, but an Ed Miliband kind of vision of the, of the role of the state, which then, at which point, <laughs> there's not much between what you're promising and what Corbyn is promising until you factor in who Corbyn is and what he has always believed. Exactly. And I think that comes down to a, a kind of internal debate within Tory modernisation in terms of what that should look like, um, which is a whole other conversation. But but briefly, I think what, what the kind of Osborne-style modernisers got, got right, that maybe Theresa May got wrong, is, is that is you shouldn't just be mimicking left-wing policies, but you should be using, you should find a vocabulary that is all about opportunity and and more individualistic in its and and market friendly in its in the web in the way it sells policies that are proven as kind of things that deliver prosperity for people. But the, but the bigger your bigger question about about how capex does its job to to to, to make clear that these ideas are are the right ones, however, even if they're becoming less fashionable. I mean, the best thing to do would be ask you, ask you the question, which is that, do, do you think maybe the first thing to do is to sort of make sure we learn the right lessons from this election and not, you know, not get carried away with the analysis and, and sort of, um, as I was saying earlier, go back into kind of, sh- uh, like the Conservative Party goes back into its shell and sort of, and, and retreats from kind of the big questions of the day. Yeah, and... Um... So I mean, obviously, so to give Brexit as an example of that, you know, I I voted Remain because I thought the I was I was a we, we've we've discussed this privately before that you know I was a fifty two forty eight Remainer and you're a fifty two forty eight Lever that you know I accepted every criticism of the European project but just felt that this, the dislocation would be too much. But then my theory is that once you've then actually gone for Brexit, you need to. To go for Brexit, in particular, you need to have the ability to sign your own trade deals to try to make your economy more more competitive. You know, uh, Andrew Cooper, when we talked to him for this podcast, gave a very good example of this, which is the the global race line that the Tories came up with. That he, for him, that was the sort of perfect political message that got the Tories in exactly the place they needed to be. Because even people who didn't like the fact that there was a global race going on accepted that there was one and that we couldn't just stand on the sidelines. You may as well try and win it. And that if you're you're in it, you may as well try and win it. The problem with Brexit that we got to, especially in the campaign, was no one was actually making the case for Brexit anymore. It was as if we had the decision, the people had decided, and then whether you supported Brexit or not was a kind of a a test of your virility and and almost of your patriotism, the whole crush the saboteurs line. So, I mean, what I'd like to see... um, much, and what I hope CapEx will do is is much is you know more sort of is really sort of relating all this stuff down to people's everyday lives. Like you know you can explain to people that when we've got you know that one of the things we can do after after Brexit is to lower the cost of every supermarket shop because we can unilaterally abolish tariffs on all of the things that we don't make in this country. Uh, you know oranges, coffee beans, in the vast sweeping range of agricultural products, there are a hell of a lot which we you know we will never 
produced in this country. And there, were, you know, there, and there was various other products like that. So why not just unilaterally say, you know, here is a Brexit bonus for everyone. You know, we're, we're taking the, the cost out of this. That's, you know, that's, and the argument against that is that, well, that, that you know, robs us of leverage and trade deals with other people. But, you know, we are the, so that's, well, depending on where the exchange rate now stands, we are, <laughs> we are in the top 10 economies in the world. You know, when people are going to want access to our markets. And, you know, in, in a way, and that's not going to kind of, I don't think that's going to clear the pitch on that. And clearly one of the hazards we face now is that because of this election, we go into this kind of damage limitation approach to Brexit, where we, uh, the, and the, problem, the potential problem with that is you have none of the benefits of, of, the, of, of the freedom of being outside the EU, but you also don't capitalise on the benefits of being within the EU. And you're in this no man's land. There's a sense among some people that that what's happened, that the Brexit Brexit now is moving away from migration control and more towards business and the economy, which I I'm perfectly happy with. But then you know there are millions of people who voted for Brexit who who wouldn't be happy with that. You know you can see people like Nick Clegg popping up already with things which are essentially EU membership or you know I mean not even EU membership like David Cameron's deal. He's basically yeah. now proposing this as a brilliant innovative. Solution and when you know when that was offered to the voters, they spat in its face. Yeah, and and your but and to go back to the original point, what's true of Brexit is true of lots of other policy areas, in the sense that you should be making you know there's a case there's a, there's the sort of radical liberal case for various on very for reform on various different things, and again the hazard uh, that we might fall into off this election is this kind of cautiousness where it's about. Uh, it's a sort of triangulation that you know it sort of gives it gives Corbyn voters some of what they want, but it, and and because it does that, it doesn't deliver the kind of rises in living standards and so on that, that we actually politicians should be worried about. Yes, I think that I think that's right. But I think you know if there were wonderful policies sitting on the shelf which were both cheap and popular and were going to solve all Britain's problems. Yeah, there's a reason they're not sitting on the shelf yeah, because yeah. someone would have, someone would have uh, imposed them by now. Talking Corbyn's language is a mistake, but talking to the people he, who you know, who, who were, who were sort of won over by him, it's not. You know, you have to speak to, you have to speak to those people, and you know, you have to explain to them, what, you know, why they're wrong. Um, but you also have to, you have to offer. You know, it's not just enough to say that he's going to wreck the country, even if he is, because we've just tried that and it didn't didn't work so it has to be you know and here's how we're going to make your lives better which it kind of takes us full circle back to the to the manifesto and you know i think there's actually a, a sort of parallel to trump here that you know he he won by appealing to voters who were more pissed off than anyone realized <laughs> against a slightly technocratic slightly kind of unappealing uh, female candidate but were you know um the the, the you know the, the the you know corbyn's sort of mass rallies the sort of the, the people buying into him. It, there's a real sort of, there's a real parallel there. And I think, you know, just as in the States, the Democrats aren't going to get anywhere until they work out what, they can, what they've got to say to those voters beyond your idiots. The Tories need to do the same thing. But, you know, yeah, I mean, yes, Corbyn, Trump won and Corbyn didn't, but Corbyn's still got much more, many more votes than anyone, anyone thought he could. So, I mean, I think there's a real ch- challenge. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, the only way of, Fixing things as is to get the is to get the is to build an economy which delivers. And another parallel between the two, which is particularly mystifying if you're trying to combat them, is that they seem to have this quality of the criticisms that should stick don't stick, and that kind of political gravity doesn't appear to apply to them. So everyone assumed that 
Corbyn's IRA sort of past and so on. Were calling the full that, war a Tory plot. All of that was yeah. that was a, if if anything was true in politics, it was that that was he was in, he was going nowhere because of those those things. And yet, and and the Tories tried it relentlessly and were very frustrated in their focus groups and so on. Apparently, that that this just didn't seem to stick. And actually, there there was something Trumpesque about Corbyn's completely delusional defence of his IRA history, which is painting himself as this kind of. Nelson Mandela figure that well not Nelson Mandela but you know this integral part of the peace process. Well, it, 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 it was no. First of all, it was I never met the IRA, and then it was yes, I did meet the IRA, but only as part of my constant efforts to bring peace to the Irish Republic. Um, brackets, that's not true, by the way. Um, Which is just the sort of you can imagine the same the same people that sort of voted yeah. for Corbyn. Or, or, yeah, or, or John, John McDonald saying I am a Marxist. And then say to Andrew, well, I'm not a Marxist. And he goes, well, what about, you know, let, or we could have been Andrew Neil, you know, let's cue the tape, here you are. Yeah. And, and I mean, and this... But that's Donald yeah. Trump, that's... Yeah, and no, yeah exactly. And, but I think in the British context, this is something I, I wrote about sort of throughout the campaign, the Tories have this structural problem that they are seen as the nasty party. I have a phrase popularised by Theresa May. I mean, if the Tories had a team around Theresa May who were even a tenth as extreme as... As Labour, who had even a tenth of that backstory, you know, the, the you know, they would be they, they, the idea that they could be in, be in the cabinet would be laughable. Yeah, and 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 Labour still have this huge electoral advantage going for them, which is this kind of monopoly on good intentions, basically. That it, at least in the at least in the it, it's not true, but I mean yeah. in the public's eyes. And, 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 and the great, I mean, you know, you don't know what it's you've got till it's gone. You know, Cameron was resented by quite a lot of people in the Tory party, but what he did do was fairly relentlessly to try to convince you know, ordinary people that the Tories were on their side and that they had policies that would make their lives better, which is what it comes back to. You know, you can argue about the, the specifics of those policies, but it's hard to see a situation in which the Tories win votes by saying that they're going to legalise fox hunting. You know, it's fairly axiomatic that in places, places where they care about fox hunting, people are already going to vote, going to vote Tory. And likewise, it's it's equally hard to see a situation where, sad to say, where the Tories win votes by saying we are going to deregulate the economy, we are going to, you know, strip away, you know, we are going to make make Britain the most competitive, dynamic economy in the world by implementing the Beecroft report, say, because many of the things which get you to the right place in ten years' time are not things which people like to do. In the, in the immediate term. And, 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 and actually, that's the big lesson from Cameron and Osborne is that the most important policy for the, for the country, which was balancing the books in 2010, they were acutely aware of how this was actually the quintessential evil Tory policy, uh, you know, cutting the size of the state. I mean, in, in voters' eyes, that is. And so instead of trying to ignore it, they, they tried as hard as they possibly could to make a virtue of it and try and, yeah, and make a case and, and, and successfully sell that to the public. Although, although in my, for, for, for me, even that, even that, there was a that was a, a successful strategy. But at the same time, it gave up, it gave up ground, and may, which maybe we're seeing happening now because there was never an attempt to really say that austerity was always a, a, accompanied by messages of regret. And mm-hmm. you know, electorally, that was probably the right thing to do. But at the same time, there was never any sense of actually, you know, we probably do, we are probably are spending too much, and could we, and we can do better. You know, the fact that the Tories have cut the number of civil servants in this country by tens of thousands and 
contrary to the predictions of left-wing economists, employment has absolutely gone through yeah. the roof. That's a triumph for the ages. You know, the Tories but that's the Tories cut, cut welfare benefits, yet, yet more jobs. You know, Theresa May, one of the most puzzling things during the campaign for me was Theresa May was, was challenged on police numbers, and she had a great story to tell. She could have said, well, I was Home Secretary. Yes, numbers of police did fall by this many, but crime fell from 9 million recorded incidents to 6 million recorded incidents because we didn't just cut, we did things more you know, We did things more carefully, we reformed, we improved the way it was provided, while at the same time making sure that you know, the budget of MI5 and MI6 went up by this much. And of course, you know, the nation's security was always topmost in our minds, but it's possible, you know, there was, there was that story to tell and they didn't, she didn't do it. She, they accept, effectively accepted the idea that Spending is good. I think Cameron Osborne realised that the you had to continually make you, you you couldn't ever kind of take that for granted. The idea that people would you'd won the argument on the deficit, for example, that because because the spending cuts continued, you know, you had to keep making the case anew because the pain, so to speak, was didn't go away once you you know some issues like, for instance, take an issue like tuition fees once you. Maybe this election proves this wrong, but once you once you part once you go once you get it through Parliament and the change happens within a few years, people kind of accept the new normal, and you don't have to keep making the, that that case anymore. Something like spending cuts is an ongoing thing where you have to. True, true, but I suppose I'm positioning a counterfactual, which is if if spending cuts have been sold in a state of you know that these are not only necessary but can also be good. I wonder whether we would have seen quite quite what we've had over the last over this election campaign in particular, which is that for anything that is wrong with the public, anything that's perceived to be wrong, people want to spend more money. The, you know, the the solution to terrorism, spend more money on police. The solution to tuition fees, spend more money. Isn't the but to get back to your point about Theresa May, isn't the obvious answer that Theresa May doesn't agree with you? I mean, she's the wrong kind of conservative to be saying. It's not that she wishes she could say. The state needs to be smaller. She actually just doesn't want it to be smaller, and maybe that's the problem. It's not. It's not a messaging thing. It's a ideological thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's possibly true. I mean, some someone did say to me that the, the, the thing to understand about Nick Timothy is that he is essentially Michael Heseltine with a nicer beard. <laughs> I, I think, and this actually sort of brings us to a conclusion. If you if you look at the the state of British politics, if you look at the the pressures on it, the, you know, the demographic pressures. Uh, the, the sort of way, the direction spending is going, the direction, you know, the, uh, people. You know. John Curtis, who we interviewed for this podcast, said that the, you know, public pub, public opinion is countercyclical. That you know, after a while of having high spending, people start to worry about that they're paying too much for it. After having a while of low taxes, they tend to worry about the state of public services, and it sort of feels like we're now in that we're in a sort of other point in the, that curve where people are are more worried about the state of public services than they are about the size of the state. Except that, you know, we would argue, the you know, in the long term, the best way to get good public services is to have a larger economy, um, which was a point David Cameron was quite good at making, and Theresa May actually, you know, kept that line from, from 2015. So, you know, and so the question is how, in this circuit, in this and it's a sort of open question, but you know the the, the the task really is to work out how we how we go about making the case for sort of market based reform for you know for for shrinking the size of the state for all of the things which we think 
we know will lead to longer-term prosperity? Well, I think the kind of optimistic answer to that is is Brexit, and is that Brexit forces domestic politicians into making, you know, they have the freedom now to make big and bold changes if they want to. And actually, that's one of the interesting things I think about the Labour manifesto is lots of the big popular policies in that manifesto wouldn't have been possible if we were staying in the EU. Brexit, if you like, is has the potential to be a kind of the perfect opener into a new conversation about the exciting new things we can do to improve our economy or our public services and so on. And so even though at the moment things look quite uh, bleak from our point of view, perhaps that's the kind of, um, there'll be a kind of bracing experience which will, which will kind of force people towards that those kind of those kinds of uh, policies yes or, or we'll end up with left wingery beyond the dreams yeah. of uh, yeah maybe i'm being too optimistic <laughs> well on that uh, optimistic and pessimistic note um ollie wiseman thank you very much uh, from next week we'll be back to our regularly scheduled uh, programming um in the meantime thank you for listening and we'll see you next week bye